Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Anil Seth. He's Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex, where he's also Director of the Sussex Center for Consciousness Science. And today we're focusing mostly on his latest book, Being You, A New Science of Consciousness. And we're also going to go through, hopefully, several different theories of consciousness, perception, the idea of the brain as a prediction machine, and so on. So, Dr. Seth, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Ricardo, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So perhaps let's start with a sort of introductory question. So in what ways can neuroscience contribute to the study and understanding of consciousness? I think very fundamentally. Uh, consciousness has been a big mystery in science and philosophy for, for thousands of years. Well, since there was, before there was science, really, people have been wondering about, you know, what is the nature of the self? What is the nature of the human soul? Is there such a thing? Why is this experience part of the world? And there are many philosophical perspectives, but empirically, there's just a very wide agreement that the brain has a lot to do with it. The relationship between brain activity and consciousness is just very, very intimate. And you know, I think, along with many others, that consciousness is a property of what happens in brains that are embedded in bodies that that interact with the world. So neuroscience is the primary discipline, I think, by which we can achieve a, a scientific understanding of consciousness, unraveling the neural mechanisms that shape the way we experience the world and the way we experience the self. But what is consciousness exactly? It's always tricky to get a uh, Precise definition, uh, even trickier to get a definition that, that everybody will agree on. But I think it's reasonably easy to get agreement on the on roughly what we're talking about. And consciousness, although on the one hand, it's this big mystery. Yeah. On the other hand, it's intimately entirely familiar to each of us. Consciousness is what goes away when we fall into a dreamless sleep or even more profoundly under anesthesia, general anesthesia. And it's what returns when we come around or, or wake up. Equally, we can think of consciousness as what makes us different from just being complicated biological objects. Now, when we open our eyes, it's not just that our brains process information. There's another dimension entirely. Our minds are filled with light and shade and, and shapes and colors. The philosopher Thomas Nagel has perhaps the, the most useful philosophical definition when he says, for a conscious organism, there is something it is like to be that organism. So there's something it feels like to be me. It's something it feels like to be you. But there is nothing it is like to be a book or a or a tomato, or maybe you know a laptop computer. Though some people might disagree and say that computers have conscious experience. There is something it is like to be them. I don't think that's true. But that's a core definition of consciousness, any kind of experiencing whatsoever. And I think that's all we need to, to get going. And definitions can evolve along with understanding. They don't have to be locked down completely in advance. So a consciousness, if I understand it correctly, as behavioral, functional, phenomenological properties, 
when approaching it to start off with, I mean, do you start at any of these particular kinds of properties specifically, like the phenomenological, the functional, the behavioral, or not anywhere specifically? And this is a very good question. I mean, these are all pretty loaded terms. So, you know, by behavioral and, and psychology, you know, we, we literally mean the study of, of outwardly visible behavior, what people mm -hmm. say, what they do. And then function is is really about, yeah, the functional cognitive capabilities associated with, with conscious consciousness, um, things that we can do in virtue of being conscious. And the key one for me is the phenomenological and which could equally be said the experiential. So you know, in most other areas of neuroscience, we can we can just be happy with the functional and the behavior. You know, we study people's behavior and see how it depends on the brain. We try and figure out how their brain implements different kinds of function like memory, attention, language, and so on. But with consciousness, we also need the phenomenological, which is what is the character of experience? When I have a visual experience, it's describable in a particular way. You know, there, there's a spatial organization to it. There are there are colors. Um, there's there's a way in which visual experiences relate to each other, which is which gives them like broad similarity. And every visual experience, however different it is, is more similar to another visual experience than it is to let's say an experience of smell or mm. of intending to make an action. The experience of self is another kind of phenomenology that it, there's a particular character to the experience of being me, you know, having a body, owning this particular body, seeing the world from a first-person perspective. And for me, a science of consciousness is really about tying all these things together. So understanding how the phenomenological experiential aspects of consciousness relate to the functional aspects of the brain to the behavior that an organism performs you know, to the behavioral competences of an organism and relating all this to what happens in brains and bodies now as a starting point it's in the history of psychology of course for a long time people just looked at behavior i mean that well, right at the beginning of psychology, consciousness was front and center, but then it got ostracized and, and discarded to the fringes, cast out into the wasteland. And for the most of the 20th century, at least in the US, there was this idea you could only say things about behavior. This was the whole school of behaviorism. And then a little bit by bit, function got back in. There was the cognitive revolution in the 1960s, Noam Chomsky and others. So function came back in. People started saying, oh, no, look, we need to we need at least to um, propose that the brain does stuff internally, even if we can't directly observe it in the way we can directly observe behavior. So then function came back, but consciousness was still out. And then really is only in the 1990s and maybe even a bit later that consciousness returned into the picture as well and say, oh, look, we can't objectively observe a conscious experience, can't put it on the table and observe it in the same way we can a behavior. But nonetheless, conscious experiences exist. You know, we we know we're conscious. And so, and we can get data about them. We can describe what our conscious experiences are like. We can do various experiments that that get at the character of different kinds of experiences. So we can get data, we can 
do the science. We can do science that tries to understand the mechanisms that underpin different aspects of phenomenology and relate them to function and behavior. So I don't really know where I start. Sometimes it's in one place, sometimes it's another, but I think the things all have to link together and that's part of the that's part of the strategy. But in neuroscience and cognitive science, there are some approaches that are more, let's say, brain-centered approaches where people focus mostly or solely on the brain to understand uh, mental phenomena. But then we have more recently embodied cognition and even the broader 4E cognition framework that is the mind as embodied, embedded, extended and enacted. To understand consciousness, do you think that we need to go beyond the brain? Yeah, I do. I think the brain is very important, but I don't think it's sufficient. So, mm. you know, a, a, a sort of disembodied, disembedded, disenacted, disextended neuroscience is only going to get you so far. Um, now, I, I really have always trodden a kind of middle ground here. I mean, my actually my intellectual upbringing was very much in this 4E tradition of, of thinking about how simple mechanisms could give rise to very complex behaviors through you know, interactions with a body and an environment. I was working on things like evolutionary robotics and cybernetics and, and these kinds of things. Of course, these are, these are not so new. Cybernetics has been around since the beginning of AI in the 1950s. It was just relatively neglected, but cybernetics is this school of thought that emphasizes feedback interactions with with bodies and and with worlds um and that so that's been part of well a cousin of ai for a very very long time i think we need both and i think in order to understand how we experience things the way we do we we definitely need to understand as these embodied and embedded interactions with the world. I also think there's a very, very fundamental role for the body, not merely as a, a mediator between the brain and the environment, but as basically something that the brain is fundamentally in the business of keeping alive. Um, and so this is one of the main ideas I explore in the book, that the primary role of the brain is to keep the body and therefore itself alive, to maintain what we would call allostasis, so so the sort of dynamic stability of the internal physiology, things like heart rate and blood pressure and so on. And it's the that imperative to control and regulate our our embodied physiology that gave rise to all this neural machinery that then becomes essential for our conscious experiences, not only of the self and the world. So yeah, I absolutely think the body and the world are important, but I, I do, I do still think a lot of the important stuff happens in the brain. So some of the, some of the most active people in this 4E tradition kind of tend to, you know, discount the brain a little too much in my view. I think the brain does represent things. I think it, it, it encodes models of things. And I think that's a very important aspect of how brains do what they do. And I guess that in studying consciousness, one of the most 
interesting questions is what is consciousness really good for? Because sometimes we hear from philosophers of mind, for example, a few of them suggesting or proposing the idea that if we were zombies, and by that they mean non-conscious beings, we would still behave the same way. But is there any merit to that? Well, so this whole idea of, of zombies, is I, I don't find much merit in it. You know, the, the idea of a zombie, as, as you just said, is basically by definition, it's a, an, a system, an organism, call it what you want, like basically something that is behaviorally indistinguishable from a conscious person like me. There could be a zombie anil, which would be, by definition, you would not be able to tell the difference. No one would be able to tell the difference. We would behave the same way, say the same things. Yet zombie anil would have no consciousness at all. There would be nothing it would be like to be zombie anil. So it's one of these things where, yeah, you can say, well, it's conceivable in the sense that I've just described it. So it's conceivable. But is it really conceivable given the laws of the universe, laws of nature as we know them, or in philosophy you call kind of nomological possibility? And here I think it really struggles. Like I don't, th I think the more you understand about how brains do what they do, the less conceivable it, it can be that um, zombies actually have you know could, could exist and so asking them to do sort of philosophical work for you i think is a, is is not going to get you uh, very far so consciousness i think almost certainly does have function like anything in biology is well understood through a functional lens through an evolutionary lens and mm -hmm. consciousness is almost certainly no different and if we think about what that function might be it might be many things but um Conscious experiences in general seem to bring together a lot of information about the environment, about the body in a single unified format scene that that all that sort of integrates like the future prospects for survival for the organism in terms of the affordances for action. You know, we we have an emotion, you know, we experience ourselves at the center of the world. We have emotional responses, we feel, you know, opportunities for doing something whatever we might do next pick up a piece of food or run away or, or whatever it might be sleep um and so on the face of it conscious experiences are incredibly useful for us and experimentally of course if we if we look at the difference in capability between say conscious perception and unconscious perception when you might show something very quickly so that the brain still um, is exposed to something, but you don't have any associated conscious experience. We can do a lot more when we're conscious of things. So yes, I think in practice, consciousness is very, very important to us functionally. And so there's evidence that consciousness has some sort of causal power on cognitive mechanisms and behavior. No. No, I, I think that's the wrong way to think about it, because we have to be very okay. careful to avoid slipping into a kind of dualism okay. where we think that consciousness is this separate realm mm -hmm. that makes things happen that wouldn't otherwise happen. Okay. And, so, and this is this is one of the tricky things in working on consciousness, very tempting always to 
to slip into this mode of thinking because it it feels very natural to us. It feels natural to think that consciousness is this, you know, back to Descartes, that you've got this realm of the mental and the realm of the physical. And if we impose that separation, then we end up asking questions like how does the how does consciousness cause anything? And we start worrying about free will and all these things. Um, I think we can set that aside and just take a more neutral view that consciousness is intimately associated with the brain. It might be a property of brain activity in some way entailed by it. And so selection pressures that sort of shape um, the brain to be a particular way are, are shaping conscious experience to be a particular way. And they're, they're intimately coupled. So it's not a question of consciousness causing anything. It's a question of things we can do in virtue of being conscious. Mm -hmm. And can consciousness be measured? And if so, how? It can, but probably not in the same way that in the history of science, measurement has been most powerful. So in, in my book, I, I talk a little bit about the history of thermometry, heat, basically measuring heat. Yes. And this is one of the best examples of how measure, the ability to measure really transformed our understanding of something. So heat was thought to be the substance that flowed from hot things to cold things. Um, but with the development of thermometers, which was very difficult, by the way, you know, how do you develop a thermometer when you don't know what heat is or you don't have a scale? So it was a very iterative process. But heat turns out to be identical to something else, which is the mean kinetic energy of molecules how fast molecules move that just that is what heat is so we really transform our understanding through the ability to measure but heat is is really quite simple it's just, it's just on one single dimension you, know, you have zero degrees to whatever hot consciousness probably doesn't lie on a single dimension now we can be more or less conscious in many different ways there are very broad differences someone in coma or general anesthesia is overall less conscious than someone who's awake and aware and alert. So there's there's an overall gradation that one can apply, but it's not completely precise. You know, when when you are conscious, you might be more conscious of the world, or sometimes or of the self. You might be more um, lost in your thoughts or paying attention to something that someone is saying to you. Um, maybe you have more vivid perceptions but your sense of imagination is 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 weaker so there are many ways i think that that dimensions of consciousness can be organized um but it is possible to measure these this, these gross differences at least my colleague and friend marcello massimini pioneered a whole series of experiments using what we call transcranial magnetic stimulation it's basically you just inject a pulse of energy into the brain and listen to the echo with eeg and by measuring the complexity of this echo, sort of how much this echo bounces around in the brain, you can come up with a number. And this number is a pretty good overall measure of these gross differences in how conscious somebody is. And that's already useful in clinics, in, in hospitals and in, in other applications. But it's not quite, it's not, I don't think it's going to go the same way as heat. Mm -hmm. 
So I would like to ask you now about, uh, I, I mean, when I was preparing this interview, actually, I wanted to ask you originally just about the integrated information theory mm. of consciousness. But in the meanwhile, back in September, there was this very interesting open letter signed by more than 100 very prominent researchers uh, claiming that this theory should be considered pseudoscience. So I would like to hear your thoughts on that also because I read the piece of yours on Nautilus and it's very interesting because it also tells us something about, I guess, how we should approach science, do science, think about the scientific method and ideas and hypotheses that people propose and also, I guess, when it comes to philosophy of science, the way we think about the demarcation problem, there is the distinction between science and pseudoscience. So uh, give us your take on that uh, controversy. Thank that. you for raising it. It's It's been a, an interesting time in the field be, because of this letter. You're right, it was signed by a lot of people, You know, many of whom I know, many of whom I, I work with, and, and many of whom I, I greatly respect for what they for the work they've done in neuroscience. Um, but I disagree with them fundamentally on the on the content of this letter. So there is this theory, just stepping back, it gives some a little bit of context. There's this theory, integrated information theory. It's not my theory, it's 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 developed mainly by Giulio Tononi in, in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And it's a theory I think is it's got a lot of interesting ideas, but I'm not a proponent of it. You know, I think it's very likely wrong. And um and I've worked on related ideas with colleagues of mine at Sussex, like Adam Barrett and, and others. Um, so I'm not a supporter of IIT. Nonetheless, I think it is science and it deserves to be in the game. And there are a number of reasons why this is important. Firstly, I think we need to recognize a certain amount of humility when it comes to this problem of consciousness. Like I have my, my own ideas I've written about in the book. There are other theories out there as well, right. but they're all almost certainly wrong. You know, we don't have a sense yet in the field that we're, we're about to crack it or we're, we're definitely on the right track. A lot of progress has been made compared to when I started 20, 30 years ago. A lot of progress has been made. Mm -hmm. But there's still a sense that you know we, we, we don't know if we're on the right track or not, really. Um, so there's a need for creative thinking about what kind of theory might, might work. And we don't want to shut down theories simply because they're strange or have weird consequences. Um, so integrated information theory is a tricky member. It's a, it's a tricky theory in the whole uh, array of theories that we have. It It's very counterintuitive. It starts back to one of your previous questions. It starts from phenomenology and then goes into everything else. Right. It has some very strange implications that, that things we would think of as not being conscious might be conscious, um, like big just grids of logic gates that are not even doing anything on, on IIT have some weird form of consciousness. Also, the central claims of IIT are very difficult and maybe impossible to test. It, it associates okay. consciousness with this mathematical quantity called phi, which in practice is almost impossible 
and probably actually impossible to measure for most systems. But this doesn't mean it's not science. You know, I think for something to be in the game of science, it needs to be able to make testable predictions that have some kind of explanatory power. Right. It doesn't mean that the, the theory as a whole needs to be testable with the tools and the concepts that we have now. This is in philosophy of science. This is sort of contrasting what you might call a, a, a Popperian view of science, where it's, it's all about falsifiability to something a bit more um, pragmatic and liberal, which is a view from Imre Lakatos, which is this idea that in many theories, the, the core ideas often are not really testable. But so long as it's what Lakatos called a productive theory, it will generate testable predictions, have explanatory power that lead to other testable predictions. Um, in evolution, evolutionary theory, one of our most celebrated theories, you know, it's, its core ideas of inheritance were not testable for ages, decades after the theory was first described. Um, so this is not a, a, a unique um, phenomenon. And IIT does make interesting testable predictions that have explanatory power. So for me, it's still part of science. And the way I put it in the piece in Nautilus was that it has the right to be wrong. We don't want to deny theories the right to be wrong because we will still learn from exploring IIT. Doesn't mean everyone should do it. I certainly don't think that. But we don't want to ostracize it either. I think that's that's the wrong move. And one of the charges here against IIT was that it has commitments to panpsychism. But, yeah. but is that really true? Well, so panpsychism is the idea broadly that consciousness is ubiquitous and, and fundamental, that it has the same sort of status as mass and energy. And you know, it's it's just part of the fabric of the, the universe somehow. Mm -hmm. Right. This is appealing to some people because it means that, you know, well, a lot of problems go away. You don't have to explain how consciousness arises from or emerges from anything if it's always there. Of course, you have other problems um, that come along with panpsychism, like how do you explain why, you know, how you get from conscious atoms or whatever it might be to conscious people. Um, it, so I don't find it a very appealing view at all, um, panpsychism. Mm -hmm. And IIT is interesting. It's not really, it, it, it implies a, a restricted form of panpsychism that, Consciousness may be much more widespread than is implied by other theories. Other theories don't really go there at all. They're mainly theories of consciousness in in brains, so they don't generalize anyway. It's not that they say it's not possible; they just don't. They don't even go there. IIT goes there and says because it's really precise about saying here are the sufficient conditions for consciousness, and these sufficient conditions are not limited to brains. They uh, any physical system where, you know, in the words of the theory, that where there's irreducible maxima of integrated information. It's a bit jargony and, and terminological, but the idea is like there will be lots of systems where this where this condition is met. Um, so yes, it implies panpsychism. I don't like the word commitments there. I mean, I'm not sure what that means that that it has panpsychist consequences for sure. But again. That might be distasteful to some people. You know, I'm not very happy about that, but it doesn't mean that it's not in the game of science. And another of our most celebrated theories, general relativity, 
Now, it has consequences that of things called singularities, which are places where the laws of physics seem to break down according to the theory. Now, this is very distasteful as well. Nobody likes a theory that has those kinds of consequences, but it doesn't mean that general relativity is not science. Like that, general, it, it makes plenty of other predictions, which of course can be and have been tested. And then, yes, we struggle with these things that remain. And it's very likely, of course, general relativity isn't the final answer in physics either. We we know that too, because of you know, the struggle it has to accommodate quantum mechanics. So, so I'm not too worried about that from the perspective of it being a useful part of consciousness science. Mm -hmm. And so in your mind, if I understood it correctly, IIT, and I think you said that would also apply to other major theories of consciousness out there, would most likely be wrong. Right. Certainly incomplete. Um, I think, you know, IIT is probably the most ambitious of the theories that, that's out there um, mm -hmm. in terms of its explaining how conscious we are, you know, what kinds of things can be conscious and the nature of different kinds of conscious experiences. Uh, but the you know the specific evidence in supporting it is is not all that strong. I mean, there's a lot of compatible evidence, but not a huge amount of specific disambiguatory evidence. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think I think thus far all the theories probably you know, and you so say there's, there's other ones. There's this global workspace theory idea where consciousness is associated with broadcasting of, of inf information in a so-called global workspace in the brain, higher order thought theory where consciousness is associated with higher level mental processes, looking down on other ones in some appropriate way. And then ideas similar to my own about prediction engines and thinking of the basis of consciousness rooted in the brains making predictions about the causes of sensory signals. All of these probably have something right about them somehow, but I would be surprised if if you know we if any of them turn out to be right in most of their details. I think that I think at the moment we're figuring out how to think about the problem rather than actually testing fully fledged explanations of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into the idea of the brain as a prediction machine in a second. But just mm -hmm. before that, how do you look or how do you understand the relation between what is conscious and what happens unconsciously in our minds? I think it's an empirical question. It's one of the main empirical avenues we have to study consciousness. You know, we can compare and contrast let's say conscious perception from unconscious perception by you know manipulating how we show people images um see what happens in their behavior see what happens in their experience see what happens in their brain i think it's important to distinguish that kind of very empirical approach from the sort of more freudian view of the unconscious where there's a whole separate unconscious mind you know, which is often called the subconscious in this case with its repressed beliefs and desires and so on so I'm not talking about that here. And most of the work in cognitive neuroscience doesn't really talk about that. It talks about the fact that, you know, the brain is is just always doing what it's doing. And sometimes what it's doing is associated with this conscious experience and other times it isn't, you know, or is or is only much less directly 
much more indirectly associated with conscious experiences. And yeah, understanding that difference helps us hone down on what parts of the brain are more directly implicated in consciousness. And that's a useful thing to do. Mm -hmm. But what are we conscious of exactly? I mean, the, uh, does the conscious content itself matter here for the study of consciousness? I think it does. Yeah, I think it's it's central. It's essential. It's back to this whole idea of the phenomenology. You know, we mm -hmm. our experiences are not arbitrary. They're geared to the world and the body in, in very important ways. And understanding those relationships between what we experience and what's going on objectively in the world and the body it really help us understand what conscious experiences are for and and how they might arise so we can take color as a good example it's always a good place to start and color is a very important part of our visual experience yet colors don't exist out there objectively in the world there's just surfaces that reflect light right uh Eyes detect three wavelengths of light most for most people, give or take. And these wavelengths, we call them red, green, and blue, but they're not actually red, green, and blue. They're just three different wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation. And out of those three wavelengths, the brain conjures an almost infinite palette of different colors. And this is useful. You know, color vision is useful for us but it's not a direct reflection of what's out there in the world. And of course, there's nothing actually colored in the brain either. There are no red neurons or green neurons. You know, color is the phenomenological flip side of the brain extracting information about how surfaces reflect light. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us more now about how the brain operates as a prediction machine. I mean, what is it trying to predict exactly and how does that apply specifically to perception? This is a very old idea, It's, but it's been rehabilitated quite recently by, by me and, and by many others too. And the first thing to say about prediction, it's a bit of a misleading word. It's, it's always hard to find the right words, but in this case, prediction doesn't have to be about the future. Um, prediction can be about the here and now. Mm -hmm. So the way I like to think about it is to imagine being a brain and imagine that you are your brain and you're trying to figure out what's going on in the world. And all you've got to go on are just these electrical sensory signals, which don't come with labels. You know, again, they don't, they don't come actually colored. They're just electromagnetic signals right. coming from the eyes, the ears, the heart, the touch, whatever. Um, and in order to make sense of these, to figure out what's going on, the brain can't just directly read out the state of the world from these signals because they're ambiguous and unlabeled. It has to interpret them using prior expectations, beliefs, prior knowledge, if you like, about the way the world is. Um, and it's this process of combination of uncertain sensory signals with the brain's existing beliefs about what's going on that is captured by the idea of the brain as a Bayesian mm -hmm. machine and Bayesian inference is all about this combination of uncertain data with with prior beliefs to get to your best guess 
about the causes of that data. So that's what I think perception is all about. Again, it's not a new idea. This idea of perception as inference goes back at least to the 19th century in Hermann von Helmholtz. That perception is the brain trying to figure out the causes of the sensory information that it gets. And that's what we perceive. Like I see a color because that's the brain's way of of inexperience of representing the cause, which is how a surface reflects light. But notice the two are not the same. How the surface reflects light is a, is a physical property of, of a world and color is an experiential property. So, you know, the, the leaves, I'm looking at the tree, the leaves aren't actually green and gold. You know, they're, they're, they're just reflect light in particular ways. But generalizing this, everything that we experience in this view is the result of the brain's making predictions about what's out there and then calibrating these predictions using the sensory data. Um, and the way to understand this is actually doing this Bayesian inference of, of combining sensory data with prior expectations to form a best guess is actually a very mathematically complicated thing to do. But one solution to it or one way of approximating that is this process of predictive coding this is where the word prediction comes in but it's now prediction in the case of like missing data so basically if the brain makes predictions and then updates those predictions using sensory data what you end up with is the brain's predictions will settle into the the best guess it's a way of the brain approximating the best guess so that's why this whole idea of the brain as a prediction machine has come to the fore but conceptually i think it's really important because even though it seems like we read out the world from the outside in, in this perspective, perceptual experience is always a top-down construction. It's the the what we experience, and this is where I add my specific claim to this view, that what we experience is or are the brain's predictions, which are reined in by sensory signals. So I use the, the slogan, again, not new, of controlled hallucination. What we experience is a comes from the inside out and the top down is an active generation that's geared to the world in ways that are useful for our survival. Mm -hmm. And okay, the, the, there's something, or I would imagine we can assume that there's something out there that is objective reality. And then there's our perception, even though they are two different things is there any relationship between them? I mean, even though our what we perceive is not exactly what what uh, objective reality is, yep. is it in any way, let's say, informed or get some sort of input or relates in any way to objective reality itself? Oh, absolutely. I think so. And I think informed is the right word. I think it's better than information. You know, it, of course, the two words have the same the same root. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's just on the surface, it's very obvious that our experiences relate to the real world you know if i see a bus coming towards me then if i don't step out of the way i'm gonna get flattened by the bus and you know that's the real world making itself very very clear but the way i experience the real world is always a construction but the construction is not arbitrary and evolution has made very very damn sure of that that for most of us most of the time the way we experience things is not and can never be identical to those things. To me, that doesn't even make any sense. Like 
the idea of accurate perception is always a bit strange because you can be accurate in the sense of um, the contents of experience lining up with the world in ways that matter to to us. So if I see an object coming towards me, there really is something coming towards the thing that really is me. So that that matters. But I will never have direct perceptual access to objective reality. You know, Kant said this long ago that the the real the objective reality, the noumenon, is always hidden behind this this sensory veil. But critically, it doesn't mean it's arbitrary. You know, we experience the world and the self in ways that are extraordinarily well tuned to our prospects for survival. And of course, the clue about that is that we all experience the world in roughly, though not not exactly the same way. I think actually there's quite a lot of difference. One of our most recent projects is trying to map out the differences in individual perceptual experience. But you know, by and large, if if, if you and I were about to cross a road, we'd both see cars when they're coming and when they aren't. And so both of our prediction machine brains are tracking properties of objective reality in ways that are very useful for our prospects of staying alive. Mm -hmm. And of course, when we discuss consciousness, many times we also end up talking a little bit about the notion of a self. But is this idea of a single, unique, conscious self that persists over time, I mean, is there any evidence to support it? Or what is the self? exactly if there's any i think following again quite a lot of pre-existing thoughts both in neuroscience and philosophy but also in some of the more eastern spiritual traditions and buddhism and so on i don't think the self is one thing i think the self is a kind of perception so we have we might have this um common sense view if you like that the self is the thing that does the perceiving that receives all the perceptions that's perched inside the skull and decides what to do next. The seat of the soul, maybe the the decision maker in chief, the pilot of the body. And I think these views of the self are are rather misguided. And they, again, hark back to a kind of Descartes dualism where the self is separate, is is, is, is the conscious rational element that is separable from the body. But I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I think what we call the experience, the self, is a collection of related kinds of perception. There's perception of what object in the world is my body. There's perception of the body from within, emotions and moods and so on. There's experiences of volition and agency of intending to do things. And then finally, there's personal identity where we have memories and plans and social networks. And all of these things are potentially separable and sometimes do come apart, whether it's in a psychiatric ward or a neurological clinic or even in some laboratories. You know, you can begin to take these these elements of self apart and mix and match them. Um, and the self is always changing too. You know, it's a process. It's not a single thing. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, we, we're especially in the West, we're kind of psychologically conditioned to hold on to the self as something that might have a permanent essence that might even survive after death. And I think, unfortunately... Well, fortunately, that's that's not on the table. The self is a process of perceptual inference, a, a bunch of them together, a bundle in David Hume's terminology. And that's all we need to be who we are. 
So there's still place in science to talk about uh, self, but not perhaps this common sense of self or notion of self that we have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it has to. I mean, the the experience of self is is fundamental. So it, it exists as an experience, and so it needs to be explained. But the whole trick here, and I think throughout, is we need to dig underneath this the how things seem view, you know, what what in philosophy is called the manifest image. We need to, you know, it, it may seem that the self is an essence and is a single unified thing. And no, it's not. It probably isn't that. And but we don't we don't just throw it out completely. You know, it, it stands as something in need of explanation. And it is possible to explain. Mm -hmm. And how should we approach, and by the way, what do we know at the moment or what can we say about animal consciousness? And by that, of course, I mean non-human yes. animal consciousness yes. because, because we, are, we animals. are also animals. Of yes, this is good. Glad to recognize that. Um, yeah, it gets hard. I'm, I mean, I've thought about this quite a bit. I'm actually working on a on a paper with some colleagues about how we might develop a general strategy for asking and addressing these kinds of questions. Now, in history, we've had a fairly checkered and arbitrary track record of how we think about consciousness beyond beyond the human. Yeah. In in the Middle Ages, these incredibly interesting episodes of of uh, animals being taken to court you know, and being um, held on trial and they had defense lawyers and all sorts of things. So in, in a sense, in medieval times, animals were given more credit than we give them now. Um, but it was still a very strange thing because, you know, an animal might, a pig might be conscious, but it's not going to understand the ins and outs of medieval ecclesiastical law. So what can be said? Well, we, we, we're still, we have a, a really difficult line to walk here, and it's the line between anthropocentrism, which is the tendency to see everything through a human lens and, and judge things on the basis of their similarity to us. And if we if we um, cleave too closely to that, then we end up only attributing consciousness to things which is which is similar to us. And of course, that may miss a lot. You know, we're conscious in one way. But for instance, while it used to be thought that maybe language was essential for consciousness, now I don't think anybody thinks that, or very few people think that. And balancing that, we have this anthropomorphism, which is the tendency to project human-like qualities into things that don't have them. And then we do this all the time. People are doing this with language models in AI these days as well. So how do we how do we balance these things? There's no single good answer, and we're stuck also by we need to use humans as a benchmark because we don't yet have a theory of consciousness that is widely accepted that just tells us what things are conscious. IIT tries to, but it's not a generally accepted theory and it can't be applied easily. So we need to use humans as a benchmark and, and sort of the idea here is a kind of very careful iteration outwards. Now, if we understand bit better the mechanisms of human consciousness, then we can make a bit stronger inference about whether things relatively close to us in, in some hard to specify way, you know, evolutionarily or in some other way. Um, and then we understand a bit more about 
the mechanisms that generalize beyond just the human and maybe we can then expand a little bit a little bit more so in my view all mammals are, are very likely conscious we all have the same kinds of brain structures that seem to be most deeply implicated in in consciousness in humans and primates beyond mammals it gets much harder to say you know and it's tempting to try and say where's the line but it's it may not be that there is a line. It's one of those questions where is that it's not even clear that's sensible. Um, you know, just as it's hard to measure consciousness along a single scale in humans, from sort of anesthesia to waking, it may be very hard to track the appearance and gradations of consciousness across different species as well. You might be able to find clear examples on one side or another. So like a single bacterium is probably, well, I think, extremely unlikely to have any conscious experience. And a mammal, on the other hand, very likely is. So there's a lot of gray area there. And for me, the the, the tricky cases, I think, at the moment, for me, are things like um, fish and simple insects. Mm -hmm. um, what is going on there? Uh, we don't, I don't think we know enough to be confident about either asserting or denying consciousness in these fringe cases. Mm -hmm. So I have one last topic slash question that I would like mm -hmm. to get into today. So uh, we've talked about uh, non-human animal consciousness. What about the possibility of conscious machines? Because you mentioned at a certain point there, uh, language models, for example, and there are other kinds of AI systems. And now and then we hear a warning from an engineer who used to work at Google, for example, that uh, a particular AI system might already be conscious or something along those lines. So uh, how seriously should we take this, do you think? Yeah, it's it's something that's definitely a very timely question to ask with the rapid improvements in AI, especially in things like language models over the last couple of years. And I think there's a lot of confusion about this. Okay. It the prospects for machine consciousness play on our anthropomorphism and anthropocentrism in different ways. Um we privilege language a lot as human beings. So when, th when something speaks to us, we're tempted to endow it with all sorts of human-like properties, including consciousness, like that Google engineer did a couple of years ago with the language model Lambda. Yeah. But that that's not reliable. You know, that I think is the, the, the our use of language as an indicator of whether a machine might be conscious says more about our own anthropocentric biases than it says about the likelihood of a machine actually being conscious. Um, we also have this tendency to associate intelligence and consciousness together. And I think, again, this is because of our anthropocentrism and, and another sort of aspect a bias that we have which is human exceptionalism you know we think we're special we think we're the best we're at the top and we know we're conscious and we think we're intelligent so we put the two together and this this leads to this idea that ai is on an inevitable trajectory to consciousness that as machines get smarter at some point the lights come on and they start to experience things as well i don't see any good reason to to believe that no 
I think, yes, in biology, there's probably an association between intelligence and consciousness broadly, but even then it's pretty weak. Like you don't have to be very smart to be in, I think, in the business of having conscious experiences. And the core conscious experiences are likely emotional reactions like fear, disgust, alarm, joy. Um, and so with an with AI systems, just making them smarter doesn't by itself guarantee that consciousness is just going to come along for the right. I think that's that's one important point. Um, another important point is that, well, we, we don't know what it would take to build a conscious machine because we don't have a consensus list of the, of the sufficient conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, and a big open question here is whether consciousness is the kind of thing that a computer could have. And a lot of people just assume that this is the case. And I have a lot of doubts about this. You know, I think that we still are under the influence of this metaphor of the brain as a kind of computer and of consciousness as a form of information processing. But it may not be. You know, there's a big difference between um a simulation of something and an instantiation of something. So think about a computer simulation of the weather. It can be very detailed. It can be very useful, but it never gets wet or windy. You know, the weather is a property of the stuff that the air is made of. You know, you need right. H2O for, for rain. Whereas a computer that plays chess is actually playing chess. You know, that chess is a matter of, computation and um doing the right thing and function so is consciousness more like chess or more like the weather now a lot of people assume it's like chess but i don't think i think intelligence is you know intelligence is a matter if it's if it does the right thing at the right time well that's intelligence but consciousness the having of experiences i suspect maybe more like the weather and that at best we'd only have machines that simulate consciousness but they could do it very well. And so this is why I still think there's a lot of concern. So on this view, I think conscious machines are very unlikely, but I might be wrong. Maybe consciousness is more like chess, in which case they might be much closer than we think, than I think. And building a conscious machine is a would be a disaster. You know, it's not something to aspire to. It would have such ethical, calamitous ethical um, consequences that we should not be aspiring to do this. So even if it's a remote possibility, we should still worry about it because it could introduce lots of potential for suffering, things like that. Mm -hmm. But even if it's not possible or very remote, what is happening, we're already seeing this with language models and deep fakes and things, we will build systems that are very, very good at convincing us that they are conscious, perhaps impenetrably so. So we will not be able to resist feeling that an AI system is conscious. And that in itself is very ethically problematic because it will distort the way we, you know, way we care about things. We might end up caring about these systems and therefore sacrificing human well-being for what in the end are just hunks of silicon and code. Or we learn to not care about them and treat them as if they're not conscious, even though they seem to us to be conscious. And that brutalizes our minds i mean that that will turn us sort of slightly psychopathic where we have to knowingly behave badly to things that you know that we feel are, are conscious 
So again, there's trouble on the way, um, but we need to very carefully distinguish these two different kinds of risk, the risk of actually conscious machines, which may be very remote or impossible, but which would be ethically catastrophic, and the much more likely near-term scenario of machines that seem conscious even if they're not. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Seth, I'm getting mindful of your time, so I guess we should end on that note then, and I'm leaving a link to your book, again, Being You, A New Science of Consciousness, in the description of the interview. Uh, apart from the book, would you like to tell people very briefly where they can find you on the internet? Absolutely. Thank you, Ricardo. Yeah, so the easiest place is just my website, which is anilseth.com. And there you can find out more about the book and also about some of the other projects that me and my my group here at Sussex have been working on. Okay, great. So, Dr. Seth, thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's been an immense pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thanks again. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com and also please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Perergo Larson, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Adam Kessel, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, then Demetri, Robert Windegar, Ruinacio, Zup, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Phil Gavana, Mikkel Stormir, Samuel Andre, Francis Forti, Agnunes, Fergal Kossen, Hal Herzog, Nun Machado, Jonathan Labrant, John Nyars, Tantanti, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, John Weyre, Tom Hamel, Sardis, Franz David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraujo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Dana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavlo Stasevski, Nelek Bakka, Madison, Gary G. Alman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Paul Tolentino, John Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litsky, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Lowacki, Georgios Steofanus, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles de Moray, Alex Shaw, Maury Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilley Jr., Old Erringbone, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Gracie, Zigoren, Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Thomas Dovner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Kimberly Johnson, Benjamin Galbert, Jessica Nowicki, Linda Brandon, Nicholas Carlson, Ismael Benzliman, George Coriatis, Valentin Steinman, Per Crowley, Kate Van Goller, Alexander Hubbard, Liam Dunaway, B.R., Masood Ali Mohammadi, Perpendicular, Jonas Hertner, Ursula Goodenough, Gregory Hastings, David Pinsoff, Sean Nelson, Mike Lavigne, and Dios Necht. A special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Van Egdam, Bernard Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Giancarlo Montenegro, Alnick Ortiz and Nick Golden, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadrian, Bogdan Canivets and Rosie. Thank you for all.